You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. If you could have dinner with anyone in the world, living or dead, who would it be? Nice. Nice. That is correct. (laughs) Personally, I have always thought it would be super cool to hang out with Dave Grohl. So if you have any connections in like the grunge rock scene or for whatever reason the Foo Fighters owe you a favor, just make your way down to the stage after service. I would like to talk to you. But it seems a relevant question with Thanksgiving just a couple weeks ago. Maybe you found yourself at a dinner table surrounded by friends, family, loved ones you hadn't seen in a long time, or maybe you were forced into close quarters with people that are towards the bottom of your list of desirable dinner guests, right? The dinner table tells us a lot about our family. What is your dinner table? Is it more of a TV tray? home office, use more for work and paper, paperwork than it is for eating? Do you need every single one of your leaves in there to fit all your family members and their friends around it? Or is the dining room an altogether unused part of your home? Today we're going to be talking about family and whether that word fills you with warm, fuzzy memories or a sting of regret. I have been praying for you that today that you will get a taste of God's design for family. But before we get started, I understand that whether by choice or painful circumstance, that not everyone has kids. You know who else didn't have kids? Jesus didn't have kids. And yet you cannot look at the ministry of Jesus and not pick up on the value that he placed on children. Moments where he stood up for kids and said things like, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. I mean, this this stuff was unheard of for his day and age. He gave children value where no one saw value. So Jesus didn't see child rearing as the, the objective of parents, but of every person who would follow in his footsteps. Passing on the faith is the responsibility of all of us. Every single person here. We got to see see that earlier during our family dedications. And so while some of the wisdom that we're going to be talking about is immediately applicable to the family strapping in the screaming toddler in the back seat on the way out of church, this is going to be for all of us. The wisdom that we talk about will help you with your future kids, your adult kids, your grandkids, and even a kid in your life that needs a spiritual mother or father or a spiritual older brother or sister to be the family of God for them that they never had at home. You guys ready to be that kind of a church family today? All right. Well, let's jump in. We're in this new series, Multiply. We just kicked it off last week, and we're talking about passing on the right kinds of things. The thing about kids is you pass on stuff to them whether you like it or not. That's just genetics, baby. First things you notice, they come out of the womb, oh, they got dad's hair, they got mom's eyes, but then they start walking and then they start talking and talking back and acting up. And you're like, where did that come from? And your parents are just cracking up laughing. They've been waiting years for this payback. 
So while we can't choose everything that gets packaged into our kids genetically, we can intentionally choose some things to pass on to them. And we get a clue as to the most important thing that we can pass on to our kids out of our teaching text for today. We're going to be picking up with the passage we read earlier, Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you want to follow along, we're going to be kicking off in verse it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts impress them on your children. This is the section of scriptures known as the Shema. Does this sound familiar? Yeah, right? We've heard it before. This is, this is the passage that Jesus quotes when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? Only the context here is the discipleship of your own children. See, this is God's plan A for redeeming a lost and broken world is the family unit. God's first command to people, be fruitful and multiply. His promise to Abraham, through your offspring, I will bless all nations of the earth. Imagine for a moment that over the course of your lifetime, you disciple just four children. Now, maybe that's a bit more in the family plan for you, but these don't even have to be your biological kids. They could be your grandkids. They could be a student that you mentor or a youth group. But over the course of your life, you disciple just four kids, and then they go on to do the same. In a single generation, we have 16 sons and daughters of God. Play that out for the next 12 generations, over 300 years. Do you know that that's almost 17 million passionate Jesus followers, making more passionate Jesus followers. See, God's primary strategy for discipleship isn't to drop your kid off at youth group and enroll them in a private Christian school. It's you. Charles Spurgeon says it like this, ministers and Sabbath school teachers were never meant to be substitutes for mothers and fathers. What happy hours and pleasant evenings have children had at their parents' knees as they have listened to that sweet story of old. Now, to be clear, the goal isn't to just raise, like, good Christian moral kids. I could care less about that. But in Jesus' expanded version of the Shema, to love your neighbor as yourself, our goal is to raise a generation of disciple-makers who can lead their lost friends to Christ. The most important thing that we can pass on to our children is our faith. The problem is you can't pass on what you don't have. When we, when we had our firstborn, Abe, one of the first things we recognized about him is that he looks nothing like me. In fact, he looks identical to Amanda's father when he was a kid. I feel like I'm raising my stepdad sometimes. <laughs> it is a bizarre sensation. I don't, I don't feel like I got any DNA into him at all. But then I got a few chromosomes in for our secondborn, Liam. He looks a little bit more like daddy, there's a family resemblance, right? The point is, I, I can only pass on what is in me. I'm no more capable of having a redhead than a kangaroo for a child. And so we pass on what is in us. And the most important thing that we can pass on is our faith. There's a family resemblance. Um, Andrew Murray said, first, be ourselves what we want our children to be. So what do we want our children to be? What are we passing on to them? They're like 
they're not just sponges, they're like mirrors. They show us the best and the worst of ourselves. When our oldest son was three and he would ask us for a piece of candy, my wife and I would often respond by saying, not today, but maybe tomorrow. And we knew he had us figured out when one time we told him to eat his broccoli and he said, mm, not today, maybe tomorrow. <laughs> so what are we passing on to our kids? What are, the, what are our children picking up from us? Because they're soaking in our short tempers and our choice words. They're picking up on our priorities and our disciplines and our integrity or lack thereof. They're even inheriting some of our vices and our addictions, which I know is a scary thought, but where do you think the term generational sin comes from. That's why it's so important that we practice what we preach. One of the reasons people come back to church in their adult years is because they have kids and they're like, oh man, I should put some morals into this thing. <laughs> and so they think church is a good place for that and come back. And if that's you today, that's not a bad thing at all. But I would say this, is if you want your kid to experience the life-changing power of the gospel and the fullness of the presence of Jesus in their life, you've got to take the first step. One of the most beautiful things that I've seen in all of my years of ministry is a father getting baptized. And as soon as he came up out of the water, he turned around and he baptized his own kids. We've got to lead by example. We've got to go first. What Jesus did on the cross wasn't just the stuff of children's books. It wasn't just good for your kids. It's good for you too. And if today you want to accept the free gift of grace that God is offering to you, you can. You can ask God to forgive your sin and lead your life today. You can, you can start a new branch on your family tree, one of hope and healing today. And if that's a step you would like to explore more, I'd encourage you to come down here with Dave Grohl's cousin, and we would love to talk with you and pray with you right after service. Well, in the 1960s, there was an educational psychologist named Laszlo Polgar who conducted a famous experiment on his own kids. He and his wife, Clara, devised a plan to raise their three daughters to be chess prodigies. They filled their home with books on chess strategy. They had framed photos of grandmasters all over their walls. They talked about chess. It was the thing they rewarded their girls for the most and celebrated them for the most. They, I mean, they lived chess. They breathed chess. They ate chess mix for breakfast. <laughs> and it worked. Their firstborn, Susan, could, meet, could beat full-grown adults at the age of four. Some of you are like, my four-year-old doesn't even know Battleship yet. Their middle child, Sophia, she became a world champion at the age of 14, and their youngest, Judith, is still the youngest grandmaster of all time, which is great if the purpose of life is chess. What the Polgar experiment was meant to show us is if geniuses are trained or if they are born, but it actually reveals to us something more about parenting, doesn't it? is that our children will value what we value. So what's chess in your home? What do you talk about the most? What do you celebrate and reward your kids for the most? What do you carve out time for? What would your schedule or your budget say about what you value the most? James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits, says, we don't choose our earliest habits, we imitate them. Our kids are picking up on what 
we value. So what do you value? You can get a pretty quick idea of what some of your values might be by taking a glance over this values table. Which words are magically jumping off the screen at you right now or maybe causing you to twitch? It might be a clue that you've, you've stumbled upon something. But we need to be willing to hold our values up against the greater goal of raising our kids to know and love Jesus. There was a study done in 2009 that's famous study, you've probably even heard of it, that showed that 90% of kids who were raised in the church, who were active in youth group in high school, walked away from the faith and left the church by the time they were sophomores in college. What most people don't know is a study was done on the families that stayed in church the very next year and it revealed the number one factor that kept students engaged in their faith was their parents. Parents that emphasized matters of faith over sports, grades, even career path. So what are you skipping church for? Do you care more about your kid getting their Bible reading done or their homework done? Are you more concerned with your daughter's safety or her kingdom calling? Because our kids are watching and they are picking up on what we value. Most of our kids, they have memories of us from before they could even speak which is a scary thought, because I wasn't counting those years. <laughs> and they're, they're picking up on what we value. We need to make our goal greater than our values. We need to be willing to let our values take a backseat to the greater goal of raising our kids as passionate Jesus followers. It makes all the difference in the world. Now, some of you might be having a lot of strong feelings right now. Maybe there's a lot of mixed thoughts about this. You've been working really hard to make sure they know how manners work. And I, let's take a moment, and I want you to bring all those concerns and worries you have about your kids. And I know you got them, because I got them too. You're worried that they're not going to marry the right person, that they're not going to know how to handle money. You're worried they won't get the right scholarships, or they'll get cut from the team, or they won't make it into the right school, or they won't get the right job, whatever it is. Go ahead, bring those things to mind. And I want you to hear Jesus' promise to you as he specifically addresses worry, your worry for your kids. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. After all, what good is it if we raise a pro athlete or a Harvard graduate that doesn't know who Jesus is? But if we get this one thing right, God's going to take care of everything else. And maybe you're thinking, okay, guy on the stage, it's a good day if I keep most of my kids' bodily fluids inside of them or in the appropriate containers. <laughs> and we get them a bath before they go to bed. Extra credit if they eat their carrot sticks. It's like, how in the world am I supposed to disciple my kid and get them dressed in the morning, and get the yogurt out of their hair, and make sure they got their homework done, their lunch packed, and drop them off at school on time. And that's where our second part of the passage comes into play. Picking up again Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says, talk about them, them being the way of Jesus, when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands, and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses, and on your gates. See, the best way to do discipleship is on-the-job training. This is where we, as like 
youth pastors and kids directors are at a disadvantage. We only get these couple hours on a Sunday. Your discipleship opportunities are all week long, and these are the best opportunities because every day we are surrounded by real-life opportunities to bring Jesus along for the ride. When we sit at home around the dinner table, when we walk along the road on the way to and from school and sports, some of you probably feel more like Uber drivers than parents. Or when we lie down and tuck our kids into bed at night, this is all discipleship. When Josh and I were kids and we would get in the car with our dad, we'd always want to turn on the car radio and he'd always turn it off and turn to us and say something to the effect of, all right, you're at your friend's house, their parents aren't home and they offer you drugs, what do you do? (laughs) And we're like, is every family like this? He was training us along the road. It was an opportunity for discipleship, and that is how this is supposed to work. It's not about a whole new routine, a whole new parenting philosophy. It's repurposing everything you currently do to bring Jesus into it, because after all, isn't that what discipleship looks like in our lives anyway? It's not just about this one piece of our lives that we get right. It's about everything. Jesus permeates everything, and it works the same way when it comes to our kids. Proverbs 22.6 says, to train up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. Parenting takes practice. It's not a one-time event. It's a process, and we're not going to get it right all the time, maybe most of the time. You don't just go to the gym once, and then you've got a beach body the next day. Like, we've got to show up over and over again. It takes a lot of time, a lot of investment, and a lot of intentionality. And I'll remind you what my counselor tells me every time he gives me advice, and I'm like, yeah, I'll try it, okay? He says, it don't work if you try it. You've got to train at it, and that's how it is for us. We've got to train our kids up in the way they should go. And so I just want to give you a few tools today to help you train up your children in the way they should go in the way of Jesus. Paul's going to give us our first piece of parenting advice today. It comes out of the book of Ephesians. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is a bit more involved than just teaching by example. We've got, like, discipline and instruction, we've got to, like, say something. We have to do something. We've got to get our hands dirty. And discipline let's be honest, gets a bit of a bad rap, doesn't it? Worldly wisdom tells us that discipline is an outdated and irrelevant construct, that setting limits or boundaries on our kids or saying no in any way is going to somehow disrupt their growing and stunt them, their growth, right? But it's the primary way that our kids learn biblical principles and morals and values. David in the Psalms describes discipline out of Psalm 23 like this, you're rotting their staff They comfort me, not to use pet ownership as an analogy for parenting, but if you've ever kenneled trained a dog, you get this, right? Like the worst thing you can do is throw your eight-week-old puppy into a 2,500-square-foot house. Your carpet knows this. (laughs) It's terrifying. They don't know what to do in all that space. They haven't learned it yet. And so by putting parameters and giving them a defined area, it's actually a source of comfort for them. And when you do discipline properly, it should be a source of safety and comfort for your kids 
as well. This is why Paul starts off this passage by saying, do not provoke your children to anger. This isn't about beating your kids into submission or nitpicking and nagging everything that they say and do. It's about helping them grow. That's why it's so important we understand the difference between punishment and discipline. Punishment says you get what you deserve and is characterized by rejection and humiliation. Maybe some of your not so proud parenting moments are coming to mind right now. Don't worry, I have plenty of them too. Discipline says, let me help you change and is characterized by teaching and training. We have a great resource in our library over there called Raising Passionate Jesus Followers. It's written by John Mark Comer's parents, so he turned out all right. I, I read through this in preparation for today. It's one of the best resources I've come across for Christian parenting. And in this, Phil and Diane actually outline a four-step process for biblical discipline that I want to pass on to you guys if you would find it helpful. Step one is to call it out. And this is, sometimes we miss this, especially when our kids are younger, is we think it's cute or silly, so we make excuses for it. We say things to ourselves and our friends like they'll grow out of it. The only thing your kids will grow out of is their clothes. And a helpful way to know if there's a behavior that your kid is struggling with that needs to be addressed is to ask yourself, what will this look like 10 years from now, 15 years from now? Because a tantrum that seems innocent enough today is anything but cute when your son can't control his rage with his wife or his own children one day. So call it out, don't ignore it, address it, and the sooner the better. Step two is to correct it. This is a step we kind of half do, and, we, and I think probably for most of us, we've been doing it wrong, is an opportunity to have a conversation. This isn't a lecture. This is a question or questions to ask your kid. You're trying to equip them to learn how to navigate difficult situations, situations with conflict. And so you don't go in there, you beat them over the head with the Bible. You ask them questions, questions like, how would you feel if someone did this to you? Or what do you think we could do to make things better or right with that person? What do you think Jesus would do if he was in your situation? What would he say to your friend or what would he, what would he do? This is a conversation, an opportunity to equip them to navigate it. Because one day they're not going to be there for you to lecture them and tell them what to do. They need to figure out how to do this stuff on their own now. And then step three, there may need to be consequences. I'm not going to tell you what those consequences should be because I don't need those emails in my inbox tomorrow. But it is so important that your kids know that your words are going to be backed by action. If you're the kind of parent that finds yourself saying, don't make me count to three, and then you get to three and nothing happens, I'm guessing that's probably not working for you, right? So it's so important our kids know that our words are backed with actions, with some kind of consequences. And again, I'm not going to tell you what consequences, but I'll give you a couple of guidelines when it comes to navigating consequences. One, so important that you and your spouse are on the same page, that you guys are working together. Your kids need to see and experience you guys as a team. And if the family unit runs one way while dad's at work and a different way when he gets home, it creates just a weird dichotomy in the home. So make sure that you and your spouse, you're talking about this. You're on the same page. You know what you're doing. You know what behaviors you're trying to address, what consequences you're going to use, and at what point you're going to use those consequences. And then second thing I'll say about consequences is there's a lot of parenting blogs out there with bizarre advice when it comes to discipline. And I would just say make sure whatever consequences you do land on make sense 
and are connected to the behavior you're trying to address. If your kid's not sharing a toy and you make them do 50 push-ups, how is that related? But maybe you take a toy away. You're trying to address and reinforce a behavior, right? So the final step here, and this is the one we oftentimes miss, but is the most important part of discipline is encourage. Our kids need to know that no matter what they've done, that we still love them. This is why discipline can be a source of safety and comfort. This is an opportunity to actually bring the gospel into a difficult moment, because your kid is gonna feel ashamed already. They're gonna know they disappointed you, that they messed up. And you can either double down on the rejection they already feel, or you can tell them, I still love you. There's nothing you could do to make me stop loving you. This is where they'll understand God and his grace and the gospel for the first time is in these moments. So tell your kid you still love them. Encourage them. For every rebuke, there ought to be 10 good jobs. Again, we get this with dogs. We gotta, we gotta encourage our own kids and remind them that they are loved no matter what they have done. If we're doing discipline in this way, you'll start to experience what it says in Proverbs 29, 17, correct your son and he will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. Discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Best place to find instruction from the Lord is where? The Bible. If you don't have one of those, get one today. Take it home with you. Read that thing with your family every day. Read it together. We recently implemented a new rule in our house where Bible time comes before screen time. Do you know what my kids are asking to do all the time now? <laughs> Bible time. <laughs> it's like I wake up. They're like, can we please read this? <laughs> But if you've got littles, maybe snag a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's got like some language that's a bit more familiar for their age group. We've actually got some handouts that have a Christmas Advent reading plan, like scheduled to match up the Jesus Storybook stories leading you all the way up until the Christmas story on Christmas Day. What a great time to introduce a new Christmas tradition. Do you just open presents on Christmas or do you read the story of Christmas together? What a great time to crack open the Bible as a family. Maybe try memorizing scripture as a family. If you guys were to memorize one scripture verse each week from the time your kids are four to the time they graduate and are out of your house, they'd have almost a thousand different memory verses tucked away in their hearts for those times when you're not around to help them out. What a gift that would be to your kids. And then if your kids are a bit older, help them establish their own reading routine. Let them pick out their own Bible, make it a huge deal, and then help them carve out and protect time in the day in the same way that we would for sports or for training or for doing homework, but for reading God's word. And I want to speak to fathers for a second here, and this is to me too, but one of the, kid, one of the things our kids need the most from us is for us to initiate and start spiritual conversations in our homes. So many fathers, we, we just run out of words when it comes to matters of our faith, but our kids need to know about our relationship with God. They need us to talk about God. So maybe the next time you find yourself at the dinner table, instead of just asking, how was your day at school? Maybe ask, what have you been reading in the word? Ask your kids, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think Jesus thinks about you? How did you notice God today? How do you notice God in creation? What are areas of your life you need God's help? 
And when we talk about Jesus, would our words incite the imaginations of our children? Jesus should be their favorite superhero. They should want to be Jesus for Halloween. Like, they should love Jesus more than Batman and Spider-Man, right? A couple weeks ago, our kids were in the other room, and we, Amanda and I were folding laundry, and we heard um, our five-year-old son start screaming at our three-year-old, whip me, whip me! <laughs> so we did what any good parents would do, and we shut the door and kept folding the laundry. <laughs> no, we ran in there to find our two sons reenacting the crucifixion of Christ. And we were like, not sure if we're doing something real right or real wrong <laughs> in our home. <laughs> but you don't, you don't have to have all the answers to talk about this stuff. Your kids just want to know. They just want to know you have faith. They just want you to bring it up with them. One of the best things you could do is just tell them what you're learning about God and how you're growing in your own faith. And lastly, our kids desperately need our affection. This is where they will first experience passages like 1 John 3, 1 that says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And speaking again to us fathers in the room, this is where our, our kids will get their first impression of what it means to be a child of God and for God to be our Father. Our kids need to see and to know and to feel feel our great love for them as we lavish it on our kids. And this is easier at first when they're all cute and cuddly, you know? They just want to snuggle up to you. It's very easy to be affectionate. Then they get a little bigger, and they don't want you around as much, or they don't want you to drop them off at school anymore. But your teens need your affection whether they act like it or not. In fact, your teenagers will have days and weeks, even months, that they think Nobody likes them, that they don't even like themselves. And our job is to make sure, make sure they never forget that we like them. John Eldridge says that every boy is asking the question, do I have what it takes? And every girl is asking, am I lovely? And I'm asking, what are they hearing from us in response? Our kids need our affection. There was a study done by psychotherapist Virginia Satir that concluded that people need at least 12 hugs a day in order to grow and thrive, eight hugs a day for emotional stability, this is maybe explaining some things for you right now, and four hugs a day just to survive. How are we doing? Whenever my dad would give me a ride as a kid, he would always put his hands on my back and massage my neck. And to this day, if I get in a car with my father, even if I'm driving, I lean over <laughs> looking for my massage. <laughs> now, you want to be sure to pay attention because each kid's different and each kid receives love and affection in different ways. The hand massage thing on the neck might not be a good idea at all for your home. So you want to pay attention to each unique child and how they best receive love. For example, um, whenever I would tell my three-year-old son, Liam, I love you, he would just stare at me blankly, like my high school girlfriends. <laughs> Until a couple weeks ago, I invited him to come mow the lawn with me, which maybe sounds like more punishment to some of you, but you have to understand, Liam loves lawn mowers. 
loves them a little too much. Like if we go to a friend's house, the first thing he asks to do is go out to the garage and see the lawnmower. <laughs> and so I invite him out to come mow the lawn with me and we're awkwardly pushing this thing. He's got his hands up on the bar up here and I've got my hands on his hands because I don't want him to you know, get sucked up in there. So I, this probably isn't a bad parenting analogy. <laughs> lawn mowing is not a great thing to do with your three-year-old boy. Anyways, we're walking along and he starts shouting something at me and I shut down the mower just in time to hear him say, I love you too, Dad. Each kid's a little different. And so what worked with one kid is not going to work with your other kid. We need to pay really close attention to how they best receive our love. And maybe as I'm talking today, this sermon just is hitting you in a place that's making you feel overwhelmed and discouraged. And I want to just give one last piece of parenting encouragement to you. And that is that prayer covers a multitude of sins and shortcomings. So would you pray for your kids? Pray for them when they won't sleep at night. Pray, pray for them when you're sleep training, when they're throwing buttered noodles in your face. Pray when they're staying out past curfew. Pray when they're having a meltdown. Pray when you're having a meltdown. Pray for their future spouse. Pray that God would take their energy and turn it into leadership. He would take their strong emotions and he would turn it into a kingdom calling that they are passionate about. But would you commit to praying for your kids every single day? Maybe add them to your bookmarks of lost people that you want to come to know Jesus. Put them right there at the top and talk to God about them. And if you feel like a failure, if you feel like you have more bad examples than good, would you just remember in your prayers that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, that he is bending out of heaven, not just to offer a listening ear, but a comforting arm. He is with you even in your darkest moments with your children. Well, I'll never, forget, I'll never forget a story I heard once about a father who had to stay late at work, and he felt so guilty about the extra hours away from his family that he decided he was gonna make it up the moment he got home. So as soon as he walked through the front door, he greeted his wife with a passionate kiss, he swept his boys up in his arms, and even though there was an hour left before bedtime, he spent every minute on his hands and knees playing with his children. And then when he went to tuck his oldest into bed that night, his boy looked up at him and said, Daddy, could you come home late from work every night? <laughs> See, discipleship is about intentionality. It's about presence. And we can't do any of this stuff if we're not there in the first place. If we don't show up. I get to hang out with a lot of your kids as the family pastor, and I've heard things. <laughs> Something, I'm kidding. Sometimes I'm hanging out with the toddlers, sometimes I'm hanging out at youth group, and I'll tell you what, in the 15 years that I've been hanging out with kids, I have never once heard a kid say, I wish my parents provided for me better. But I see the broken hearts of kids with absent parents all the time. Your kids want you there. They are hungry for your presence. The next generation is starving for discipleship. Would you show up to the table? Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.